0: Welcome to California Ballot Breakdown from KPFA, where we take you through the stakes of what's on your ballot, the money behind the campaigns, give everyone enough time to make their best argument, and then try to get them off their talking points. On today's special.
1: I have spent most of my career uh, making sure that the public is informed about campaign finance issues and that there's transparency and accountability in government.
2: Housing and homelessness, uh, climate, change. Uh, Our county's taken a big lead role in that, and I've been right at the forefront of it. I I think fundamentally this is a district
0: position. In California, the average state senator represents more people than the average congressman in Washington, D.C. We have an open seat in the Bay Area. It's in the South Bay, Silicon Valley, representing San Jose and the surrounding area, Senate District 15. We'll speak to the two Democrats vying for that seat, Ann Ravel and David Cortez. Stay with us. Continuing our interviews with the candidates in contests that will shape the politics of Sacramento, we're turning to Senate District 15, which covers a big chunk of San Jose and Silicon Valley. This is an open seat that has come down to a Democrat on Democrat race. We're going to try to tease out the differences. We'll start with Ann Ravel, best known for her time as an Obama appointee on the Federal Elections Commission. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: Why don't you start by by making the case for, for your candidacy? Take two minutes. Explain why you think you're a better choice than your opponent, County Supervisor David Cortese.
1: Well, I think that I'm a better choice because I am a public servant and have been my entire career and not a politician. And as a public servant, what I have done is been an advocate for consumers Uh, done a lot of work on behalf of the public. Um, And so I am truly selfless in the sense that I am doing this for the community and for the public. And that's the only reason why I'm running, because there are so many issues that we face here in this valley that need to be dealt with and have not been dealt with. And that's exactly what I'm doing. And I have spent, um, and you're going to have to cut me off when when it's too too long because I can't see the screen now, but I have spent most of my career uh, making sure that the public is informed about campaign finance issues and that there's transparency and accountability in government, as well as fighting for... Equality at the California Supreme Court for against Prop 8, uh, fighting for children who suffered from brain damage because of lead paint companies, and ultimately uh, was able to get giant verdict on their behalf. Um, And many other uh, such kinds of, of cases and work that I had done, including starting a program for elder financial abuse, which was the first one in the country, uh, which has gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars back for seniors in Santa Clara County who were defrauded by banks. And President Obama asked me to go to the Department of Justice at the beginning of his administration because of the financial meltdown and the people who were losing their homes to go after Wall Street and others who were actually defrauding people and causing the terrible economic problems that we suffered for so long. And, and Ralph, did, I'm
0: going to uh, hop in here because I want to use the bulk of our time uh, talking okay. about policymaking. Um, Okay. I I, I thought a a good touchstone for our audience would be uh, some of the policy issues that are coming up because of the ballot. So let's start with the biggest tax measure, uh, Proposition 15. This is the initiative that would uh, unfreeze property taxes for large businesses. Uh, Let them be charged taxes according to what their property is worth now, not what it was when they bought it. Uh, Where are you at on that?
1: Well, you know, it's really interesting because I have always um, supported the idea of a split role, but I do not like this particular measure and think that it will be problematic. And I have thoughts of other ways to assure that those large corporate interests that have a lot of property and are reaping the benefit and unfairly paying taxes That has to be addressed, and I have ideas about how to address it. But the problem with Prop 15 is, number one, and they say that it's going to take two or three years to actually um, come uh, to the point where the money will be coming in because of the necessity of assessor's office's to get up and running with new IT systems and the like. But the reality is, according to the assessors and according to an independent study done by a group for the assessors that voted against prop or that have said that they will not support Prop 15, they believe that for most of them, that it will take five or six years because It will take so much money and so much additional resources in order to implement the way that it's being described uh, in Prop 15. And what they think is it's going to be about $2 billion for the counties to have to pay for this over the next couple of years. And I think we need it sooner, in fact. But also, the $3 million that is the threshold for Prop 15. Um, and below are, will not be impacted. In fact, they will be impacted. That, that what will happen to small businesses, many of whom have already lost their businesses during the COVID, they will be, uh, because of triple net leases that most of them have, they will have the tax increases passed on to them. And many of them will not survive, which is one reason why the NAACP does not support Prop 15, because a lot of small businesses are businesses owned by people of color. And that is problematic as far as I'm concerned. And also, they claim that agriculture and others will are exempted. But in fact, anything that gets purchased for agriculture, whether it be watering systems or whatever else those will be covered. And so the, the measure, I think, is poorly written. And it has a really good purpose, which I agree with. But I can't support this one. And, I, and when I'm in the legislature, sure. I will make sure that we will pass a bill that actually will deal with the problem of the discrepancies in our tax system.
0: Well, what what would that be? I mean, you can't uh, weaken Prop 13, which imposes the current cap, without going to the ballot. So what would you do from the That's legislature true. on taxes?
1: That's true. I, I think that there are many ways that, um, dif- that companies that own big buildings and own big property can be taxed in order to uh, be responsible for the impacts in the community. And so there are separate taxes that could be imposed. It may not be through property taxes. But look, I have a problem with property taxes just in general in terms of schools, because property taxes in wealthy areas have therefore wealthier schools, and they're not equalized across the state to the low-income neighborhoods Which don't have as much money in property taxes, so I I I think that that is probably if the issue is schools, which is how they're um, arguing it about the uh, about Prop 15, it's not really going to be the solution for low income schools.
0: So just like to be clear, you said you're a supporter of split role that that is. Letting commercial property taxes be charged based on the market value of the property. What would a policy for split roll that you would actually support look like?
1: Well, I was a supporter. I may have misspoken. I've always been a supporter that I did not think right from the beginning that Prop 13, because it wasn't sold that way, was intended uh, to be uh, for. Business. It was intended. I was uh, walking door to door against Prop 13, uh, but and I thought that it was mainly about uh, residential property. And you know the problem, the problem with it is, and I I agree with you completely. It's difficult to just um, split the property tax system now. And particularly the way Prop 13 is done or Prop 15 is done uh, to eliminate the way that certain legacy businesses have been exempted uh, from having reassessments, which I think is problematic. Uh, but how that could be done is is or another day, honestly. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I do think there's alternatives as a way to to accomplish the same thing. Well,
0: I want to give you a chance to be specific about alternatives uh, because uh, this year the state plugged a $55 billion budget deficit largely by drawing down one-time funds. So it seems like the question of how to fund state and local government is going to be Pretty pressing if you're sitting in the state capitol come January. Like, wh- where do you want the money to come from?
1: Well, I, you know, I think that there's uh, a number of things that we can be doing about um, the state budget, if that's a broader question. Uh, for one thing, obviously, we can, uh, There, there's a lot of money out there already, about 50 million or 50 billion, I'm sorry in um, bonds that have been approved by the public but are just sitting there and have not been implemented. so that is one way of doing some of the state's obligations uh, without the the state having to find money in order to support some of the some of the projects like housing. Um, So that's one of the ways that we could do it if we actually reactivate or activate those bonds that have been passed. I also think we have to look at the entire state and look at the priorities and look at where the money is now being spent. We know that there's a lot of state agencies that aren't functioning the way they should be. And there's a question about that and whether or not the money that is being allocated is still necessary or if it is being utilized in the most cost effective way. So that is one other mechanism for finding money. For example, I mean, we know because I was there when governor Brown uh, allocated money for uh, schools for uh, those who were uh, in, uh, English learners, for those who had uh, different kinds of di- uh, disabilities and other children uh, that went straight to the to the schools, but it was not utilized for the most part throughout the, the state for those children that the program was intended for. It was used for building or for some other purpose as opposed to the purpose that it was allocated for and so that's an example of what the state should be overseeing to to look to see whether the money is being used for those purposes and whether it's still necessary I mean obviously in that case it is still necessary but there are going to be hard decisions that have to be made in the state budget there's no question about it
0: uh, and ravel let's uh, spend a few minutes talking about uh one of the biggest policy crises in California, that's our housing situation. Um, Broadly speaking, what would you want to do about it from the Capitol?
1: Well, one of the things that I think that uh, the legislature has failed to do is to, and for this valley, because a lot of the the, uh, cost of housing is of course in the construction, no question, but it's also in the land because land prices are so high here and it makes it really prohibitive. And I personally care most about affordable housing and deeply affordable housing. I don't care about market rate housing nearly as much because uh, in this uh, area, uh, there are plenty of people who can plunk down $2 million in cash and buy houses. And that's not what we want. We wanna have affordable housing. So with regard to the land, I know that the state has passed a bill, uh, the legislature has, that there should be um, some accountability for all the public entities throughout the state with their excess land. Uh, But nothing has been done with that list. And I know in this county, there is a lot of excess land, and I th- actually think that the excess land should be defined a little um, more clearly because in in this county, uh, the county has unbelievable amounts of land, both from expressways that they built and buying out the land, but also from various um, uses that really aren't being used for purposes that are truly on behalf of the community. Uh, for example, and one of my um, uh, most uh, disconcerting examples is that uh, many years ago, about probably 2006 or seven, uh, the County of Santa Clara purchased City Hall, the old City Hall, San Jose City Hall. And it's right on the same property in the same campus that the county building is located. And there's a really large area of the courts and the sheriff's department and city hall. And the city hall has been lying fallow ever since that time. Someone offered to provide money to rehabilitate it for homeless housing, and the county refused to do so, which I think was absolutely unconscionable since there are so many homeless and so many increased homeless um, individuals in this county. Um, It's apparently better to be on the street. And that property, they are planning to build a parking lot despite the fact that there is a parking lot across the street from the county building where they could build a parking garage or something if they need more housing for their increasing numbers of employees and they could build housing on city hall property but they haven't it's things like that that i think will be um, a really good remedy and i sure. also sure so
0: so that's the land side of the affordable right. also, housing gap there's there's housing... also the money side uh, right. la- labor and materials cost quite a bit it, uh, and sometimes I, you did. have to acquire land so uh, i want to return to the question housing's quite expensive to build um Well, I think you're opposing the biggest tax hike that's on the ballot. Where, Where would the money come from?
1: I, I actually think that there are a lot of ways to build housing more cheaply. You can build housing by, um, having, uh, relationships with those who are building modular housing and other kinds of, uh, prefabricated or other kinds of housing that is a lot less expensive and they can be scaled up. I know that is something that has been a major part of the um, uh, concept that will come, uh, that McKinsey has reported on for LA and it makes sense. And it's a lot cheaper than building housing and faster. And a lot of this housing needs to be built more quickly. And the you're, you keep going back to Prop 15 that you're never going to get that money for the next three or four years anyway, maybe five, maybe six. And so housing is an urgent problem. It's not six years to get away. Homelessness is an urgent problem. It's right here now. It's gotten um, 157% worse in Santa Clara County in the last year. So six years from now is not really the time
0: the kind of third leg of the housing stool uh, is tenants rights uh, there's a push to partially repeal the state's restriction on the forms of rent control local governments can enact this is prop 21 uh, where are you on that
1: yeah I that's that's um, another bill that I do not support um, while I Certainly agreed with what the governor uh, signed and agreed to do in terms of the five percent cap, um, and that is still out there and should hopefully go into effect in a way that is helpful to people. But we know uh, from those who are uh, in the industry, who's done who have done studies on this and who've investigated it, that those. Uh, rental uh, controls that are being um, proposed in that bill, in that measure, um, haven't worked. And what will happen is there will be unwillingness for those uh, people who are likely to uh, develop to develop. And what we need is more housing to bring the prices down. Because in many cases, what has happened is there's less uh, availability and therefore only those certain groups that are uh, being covered by this will have the rent control and for everybody else, the housing will be incredibly expensive. And so we need to control that by having more building.
0: And Ravel, finally, and I apologize, we've only got like two minutes left. Uh, there's a, a, a big fight that started in the legislature that's now in the ballot o- over labor laws. Uh, the legislature passed a law, AB5, uh, requiring gig workers to be classified as employees rather than contractors. Uh, that's something Uber, Lyft, and some other big platform companies are spending gobs of money to try to reverse at the ballot box. So where are you at on this?
1: Well, you know, I I haven't um, come to a conclusion on on that, and I'm still analyzing it. I have a strong view on AB5, however, and I definitely think AB5 needs to either be repealed or totally redone, and that and then totally redone to really deal with the issue of Dynamax. Having read carefully the Dynamex decision, um, I know that AB 5 actually was not solely about classification. It was about far more than that. And it has impacted millions of people uh, who have lost their jobs. And now, of course, because they go and lobby the legislature, some groups who have the money and the ability to do that have been exempted, whereas other people have been really negatively impacted, which is another reason why a number of the groups uh, representing minorities, such as the NAACP, such as the um, Black Chamber and others, um, are against it, as I am, because it has made many people who are independent contractors that want to be independent contractors lose their jobs. Now, this is not just about lyft and uber that people seem to want to vilify in the legislature it's about a lot of other people and it impacted writers it impacted jazz musicians there was a small theater here that that had to close that was a nonprofit. Um, the newspaper deliverers it's just it's it's a poorly written measure uh and it had the distinction of giving exemptions to certain groups and others that are similarly situated were not exempted. And, and that's just wrong. That's not how you write legislation. So that's my that's my view on the issue.
0: All right. And that's our time. And Ravel, uh, I want to thank you very much for, for making the time for us.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Ann Ravel is one of two Democratic candidates for Senate District 15, which covers a big chunk of San Jose and Silicon Valley. Uh, we'll be back in a minute speaking to the person contesting for that seat, County Supervisor David Cortese. Hey, you're hearing us reference a lot of ballot initiatives in these interviews, and I want you to know that we've got debates on most of them already up. Just go to kpfa.org and search for California Ballot Breakdown. You'll get to hear the pro and the con make their cases at length, uh, and me press them to be specific when they seem to be avoiding that. Uh, Again, that's California Ballot Breakdown on kpfa.org. You can also subscribe using the links at the top of that page so that you get all of our election segments as soon as we've got them posted. In many cases, that is before they go to air. Continuing our interviews with the candidates who are contesting Senate District 15, which covers a big chunk of San Jose and Silicon Valley, we will go to David Cortez. He is currently a member of the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors. Thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: So we we ask candidates to to start by just taking two minutes to to make the case, the general case. Why are you a better choice than your opponent?
2: Well, you know, I've been very deeply immersed in in the community here in Santa Clara County for a number of years. Not only was I, uh, you know, so sort of born and raised here basically, but um, I have. Uh, worked as a private business person uh, until I was 45 years old. Overlapping that a little bit, I served on the largest high school district board um, in Northern California, the Eastside Union High School District with 25,000 students, and then moved on to the city council, served a couple years as vice mayor in the third largest city in the state, and moved on after that. Um, In 2008, during that first Obama uh, election, If you want to think of it that way, it was a big high turnout election. I ran for supervisor that year and won a seat on the Board of Supervisors. And I've been there now for over 11 and a half years and I'm in my final term. But, you know, the the experience in education, in municipal government, um, the experience going through upturns and downturns, the experience at the County Board of Supervisors dealing with issues that really are, are microcosm issues of, of what we're facing at the state housing and homelessness, uh, climate change, uh, our county's taken a big lead role in that. And I've been right at the forefront of it. Um, Justice reform and justice issues. uh, Again, our county being a big urban county has uh, been very, very involved in in moving forward on those issues. Um, Education, I mentioned earlier about my stint on the high school board, but the county um, has a, a role in all that as well. And uh, all of that it has made me feel not only extremely qualified, but excited uh, you know, to serve in Sacramento uh, on behalf of 40 million people and doing some of the things I've, I've done here on behalf of 2 million people. But I, I think fundamentally, this is a district position. It is Senate District 15, as you said on the outset of the show. And it means I need to continue to be here you know, working on a grassroots level with the community like I've always done. And that's what I enjoy doing. I like being at neighborhood association meetings and PTA meetings and faith-based meetings and uh, you name it. Um, it's kind of what I do.
0: Um, I, I want to spend most of this interview drilling down on policy uh, and kind of sorting out where, where the dist- differences are between you and Ann Ravel. Um, the, the first thing we discussed was the question of taxes. She, she's opposing... Proposition Fifteen, the the proposal to roll back uh, the tax cap on commercial properties that belong to large businesses. Um, where, where are you on taxes generally and on this proposition specifically? Well, I mean nobody
2: nobody wants to be taxed. I'm a homeowner, I'm a property owner owner, and I'm a commercial property owner as well. As I mentioned earlier, I didn't even get involved in politics or public service full time until I was 45 years old. By that time, um, I had you know accomplished a lot of, of business investment and nobody likes to look at their tax bill and and see a variety of different bonds or parcel taxes or other levies uh, on there. It's it's tough enough, uh, you know, given the cost of living uh, just to pay uh, mortgage payments or rent payments, uh, you know, are are often reflective of what a property owner is is seeing in the same regard in terms of taxes. Um, And, and, you know, we've had a, a ton of sales taxes that have mostly been used to uh, finance projects like Bart to the South Bay and, and other transportation projects. So, you know, there's not a lot of places to go to help education, and that's really what the issue has become. It's not about whether I like taxes or not, or whether I want my own commercial property tax. But people have been talking for years about, you know, how do we create funding for education, and how do we try to equalize funding because uh, all school districts are not receiving funding at the same levels, and per-people spending is not even equal throughout California. It's far from equal. And, you know, what we get every time, it seems like every time there's a revenue measure or an idea like Prop 15, we get people, you know, who come on and say, no, no, it's not perfect, so wait. You know, let's wait a little longer, maybe next year, maybe two years from now. Meanwhile, you know, on the first five years of the salary schedule, we have teachers literally who are earning below federally adjusted poverty level wages. Um, That's not just here, that's all over California. Um, I represent in the Senate district, in the county supervisorial district that I'm elected to represent, some of the poorest school districts in the state when it comes to per-pupil per spending and just uh, general revenue. And um, they can't wait. They can't wait. So here we have a measure that completely and totally protects uh, residential Prop 13 protections. It, it doesn't threaten anybody's uh, um Prop 13, you know, tax relief that they're getting on their home, including me, um, it it doesn't um, threaten anybody's uh, agricultural property because it doesn't apply to that. It doesn't threaten, you know, to raise taxes or reassess somebody's vacant lot or or open space that they're trying to preserve as part of a, a larger parcel. It doesn't do any of that. It protects all of that. It keeps all of those Prop 13 protections in place. All it says is. That if you've been holding on to a commercial property for a long time, you haven't been reassessed, um, and that's not right. That's not really what Prop 13 was trying to protect. It was trying to pr- protect uh, homeowners, especially folks who are on fixed income, who were who were getting reassessed and, and increased property taxes year over year over year by local agencies um, until 1979, into, until the measure passed, until Jarvis Gann. So this is a way to say let's keep all those protections in place uh, for, for those residential property owners and open space property owners. Uh, but if you've got a shopping mall down down the street that hasn't been reassessed since 1972, or I have one in my district that hasn't been reassessed since 1962, um, maybe it's about time we do that and they pay their fair share so we don't uh, have those properties surrounded by poor and uh, poor school districts, and, and literally crumbly, crumbling schools in some cases. So I'm, I'm for it. Um, it. Is it perfect? No. Um, there's an aspect of it that I say could have been a little different if it was legislated. I would have asked that the, the threshold for commercial properties to be reassessed be a little bit higher than $3 million, of course, because of the property values in this neck of the woods here in Silicon Valley. Uh, you you know, that isn't a very high threshold, Uh, you know, in Modesto or Turlock or someplace like that, it's probably just fine. But, you know, that could have been a little more perfect. Um, But I don't think uh, perfect uh, should get in the way of the good in this particular case. Um, And I don't think we can wait much longer, especially with the pandemic downturn in terms of getting um, funding to our schools. That's that's just not going to come from the state general fund anytime soon.
0: Does it go far enough? Um, state projected a, a close to $55 billion deficit this year, uh, largely plugged it in the budget by drawing down reserves and, and one-time sources of funding. Um, th- this measure is only like uh, 8 to $12 billion by the state's estimate, and that's after several years after it's fully phased in. Yeah, but you also have
2: Prop 98, um, you know, fu- guaranteed funding out of the general fund. I think the state's challenge and my challenge as a state senator um is you know what do you do after you've taken education money out of the general fund uh, with or without prop 15 If prop 15's there um you know as i just said it's good for the schools and to some extent good for local governments that will get a little bit of that revenue Um, but the state is going to be left with the remainder balance if you will or the remainder deficit you know after you pull uh you know the baseline um, uh, um, school revenue limit money out of out of the general fund, and, and that's where you know it gets worrisome and scary. I mean, you got to look at a fifty-four billion dollar deficit is double what got Gray Davis recalled. I mean, he was he was up against a twenty-five billion dollar deficit back then, and I realize we've had some inflation, but it hasn't been hundred percent inflation. I mean, this, these numbers are numbers that we haven't seen before, and I think the solution is going to be. Something that we had to do at the county level again, where I feel like my experience comes in uh, to some degree. Um, back um, at the during the last deep recession, uh, I was a county supervisor that had to go in um, to twenty-four different collective bargaining units in our county and say, "Look, we need concession contracts. We 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 need rollbacks. We need wages and benefits rolled back so that we can save your jobs. We need new three-year contracts. Three years from now, we should be out of the woods." And we'll make good, you know, and if you trust us, if you trust me, do what I'm saying. Um, Take a cut. Uh, Let's get through the next three years and, you know, and we'll we'll make you whole. We'll make you whole again. And it's really the employees of the state of California that are going to have to carry uh, the the whole California government on their shoulders and and make some sacrifices, number one, because that's the primary cost. You know, that's the primary um, general fund cost that 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 the state government is faced with personnel. Um, But, you know, moving money around uh, will have to be done. Um, You know, a good understanding of which buckets of money can be used, um, you know, to do things that we might not otherwise have done with those those dollars. That all has to be looked at. It has to be on the table. Everything has to be on the table. And the other thing I think we have to do is, you know, there are. Buckets of capital money all over the state budget in every agency. Those are dollars that don't go to personnel, but they're there to invest in capital projects. You know, whether it's building a bridge, building a building, you know, expanding a highway, uh, building a rail line, we need to rush those dollars out as quickly as possible, streamline the competitive bidding rules, get those projects going. You know, think uh, WPA, Franklin Roosevelt's time, I mean the, the idea with that is counter cyclical investment. It's there is no reason to freeze that money up and, and act like you're scared to invest it. It's it's much better to get that money out the door, put people to work, those people spend money um, and get cash registers, you know, churning again, at least to some extent. And uh, and that usually helps trigger um you know the end of a recession. So that that's that's what really the formula as far as I'm concerned. None of it's easy and none of it's involved, none of it involves a magic wand. It's just roll up your sleeves hard work and try to protect as many services and jobs as you can while you balance that budget.
0: David Cortez, I'd like to spend a, a big chunk of our time talking about um, the housing crisis because it reflects pretty much every level of uh, politics in California. Uh, big picture, uh, what would be your priorities in terms of dealing with it?
2: You know, I think the most important thing that people have come to realize over the last couple of years, including some, uh, some of our legislators, is that housing production is a big part of the problem. We've been growing jobs in the Bay Area, for example, uh, at a six to one ratio over, over housing. I mean, that's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. We have 157,000 people commuting in from the Central Valley into the Bay Area um, every day uh, in pre-COVID times, at least, Um, And we know that's going to come back at some point. I mean, we'll have some telecommuting that that lasts, I hope. Um, But the fact of the matter is, congestion is going to come back. Those, what we call in-commutes from the Central Valley are going to come back. Um, And, you know, that can only worsen if we don't get housing production going. And I think the way you get housing production going, um, again, based on my experience, which crosses over into the private sector when I was a younger man, is is you have to have incentives um, and tax credits to make that happen. There's an awful lot of private sector development in housing. That's what most people would call on the bubble. It's like that investment that you think about in your household that you're not quite sure you can make or not because you're not quite sure you can pencil it out and afford it. And sometimes the tipping point isn't that much. It requires a tax break or it requires um, something that I've been uh, looking to do. And Jim Bell, my predecessor, the current state senator, has been looking to do is to create a, a statewide housing finance agency um, or authority, uh, much like they have in New York City, um, which can provide that that little subsidy. I'm not talking about 100% subsidized housing. I'm talking about contributing just enough to a project to get uh, to get that to the, the tipping point, so that uh, the private developer, or the nonprofit developer, or the municipality that's involved. Can get that thing underway, and you know, and and then of course we need to, to uh, continue to encourage our local governments to locate that housing along transit corridors. Um, you know, we need we absolutely have to reduce vehicle miles travel. We have a plan in the Bay Area called Plan Bay Area, which is uh, uh, intends to reduce greenhouse gases by, um, in part by not only building housing but building it in closer proximity to employment and frankly i think at some point um, we're going to need something that i call a vehicle miles travel tax i think we're going to have to get industry to understand that um, they need to employ people closer to uh, closer to their their workplace um, or let them telecommute. but if to the extent that that we have Silicon Valley employers, for example, that are that are turning a blind eye to the fact that they've got people 157,000 people commuting from the Central Valley. Um, we've got to create disincentives for that, and incentives for doing things uh, the right way, which is you know to be in partnership with us to build housing on some of those industrial sites to get people uh, into into live work situations.
0: So you haven't mentioned the area of housing policy that's been the the center of a lot of legislative fights over the past couple of years, which is zoning. Um, where do you land on on a proposal like uh, SB fifty from Scott Wiener, which would uh, zone for from the state level for higher density uh, along transit corridors and other places?
2: Well, SB fifty, if you if you read it closely, it actually does not override local zoning. What it does is it, it streamlines housing production. Um, particularly around something called the regional housing needs analysis, which is uh, something Senator Weiner has been kind of obsessed with in a good way. You know, he's saying, look, you got 101 cities in the Bay area. Uh, many of them are not producing the housing that they, that's prescribed for them. That's in their own general plans. That's already zoned. Uh, basically those municipalities are saying, Hey, we did our job. You know, we got a general plan, we got zoning. Um, but.'" Then when the projects come along, they get bogged down, they don't get built, and they're not meeting their goals. You know, those goals are memorialized in, in state law and in, in regional uh, documents, like the Plan Bay Area document that I just talked about. And so what Senator Wiener was trying to say is, what good does it do to have something called Plan Bay Area, which is intended to reduce greenhouse gases by 7% uh, every, every few years, every time you roll that plan over? It's based on the idea of housing being built in workforce proximity, but then the housing doesn't get built. That means the whole plan is built on a house of cards, no pun intended. So he's he's trying to to, to say, look, I, I get it. I get what the problem is. You're zoned, all right. Your general plan, your general plan's fine. You have these uh, planned development areas that are great. You know, they're they're urban villages. Um, they're in the right locations. They're on transit corridors. Um, but we have to stop having two or three or four-year processes at the local government level, um, where folks lose lose the window of opportunity. Uh, a year ago, some of those projects could have been built. Right now, we're in a downturn. Can you still get money to build them? That's what he's trying to accelerate. The idea that once a project's ready to go, that the local government, so long as and the bill says that it says so long as your it's uh, the applicant um, has filed consistent with the general plan of local zoning, um, that essentially the process becomes ministerial at that point.
0: I want to talk about, um, and, and we're running short on time, so apologies, but the two other areas of housing policy that have been in play, um, tenants' rights and affordable housing. Uh, let's start with tenants' rights. Have, have you taken a position on on Prop 21, a uh, partial repeal of uh state preemptions of local government's ability to create rent control?
2: Yeah, I've I've publicly opposed Prop 21. Um, I like Assemblyman Assemblyman Chu's approach. You know, that bill was just uh, passed in the prior session. Um, It was anytime you can get any kind of consensus around a bill like that on tenant protections, um, I think there's great hope that it can be effective, that it's not going to be litigated or fought you know, by, by landlords or by the industry. And, you know, he got that much accomplished. Um, I'm not sure if it's aggressive enough, we'll see. And and I think we need to, we need to, we need to see if it is uh, over the next couple of years. And if it's not, uh, surely there will be another referendum, you know, that comes back. And, you know, the Chew bill says a uh, 5% over the cost of living is maximum as a maximum rent increase. Um, we know now in the Bay area for whatever reasons, um, could be related to pandemic rents are down about seven percent on average um so you know there's an ebb and flow to the market and we're just going to have to see you know if the bill that's was was legislatively approved is um, um you know let's get it road tested and let's see how it works before we before we rush to the ballot and and essentially layer on another bill which is prop or another referendum which is prop 21 so um I think Prop 21 is at a minimum premature and probably unnecessary.
0: And what about affordable housing? Like how how much of the housing that the state needs to build to fit the supply problem you outlined uh, has to be housing that's subsidized for the people who live in it?
2: A lot. You know, we were the first county in California um, and, and I took a major leadership role in that and in passing uh, a 950 million dollar housing bond 700 million of which uh, goes to extremely low income housing you know that was Santa Clara county's measure in 2016 i co-chaired the campaign and and we knew and we talked about openly talked about at the time that we've been fighting um, with redevelopment agencies and everybody else around cities <laughs> to try to get more Uh, tax increment money or more revenue dedicated to the extremely low income category, which is 30% of area median income, 30%. I mean, that's basically homeless, uh, you know, way below poverty level and um, $700 million of our own bond goes toward that. Nobody in California has done anything like that. Nearly a $1 billion overall bond. The rest of that money is for various other levels of affordable housing, very low income, low income. You know, there's about five different, uh, Uh, categories, if you will, based on income, Um, but 70%, more than 70% of that money is going to ELI. That's what we have to have at the state. I would favor a statewide bond uh, that, you know, helps give a shot in the arm to building permanent supportive housing. uh, How big? Well, you know, that has to be extrapolated out, but obviously it's got to be a lot more than the $1 billion that Governor Newsom talked about for homelessness, pre-COVID, you know, in his original budget, I mean, if we do, we got a one, we have $1 billion here that I just talked about all in all it'll house the 700 million will house about 4,200 folks. Um, but you know, you, you can extrapolate those numbers out, but I'll tell you, even here, that's not quite enough. We're trying to match that money. we we have a program here now that is attempting to get, um,
0: you know, tech I, companies to I'll, I'll cut to the chase. I mean, I mean, not, not quite enough seems to be the story of affordable housing in California and, and frankly, across the country. We started the conversation on raising money to plug the state deficit. Uh, you're supporting a tax increase that won't be sufficient. You talked about having to get concessions out of public workers unions. So like where, where would you envision as a state legislator going to for the money it would take to build the amount of affordable housing required uh, to actually put a, a dent in the housing crisis for people who can't afford market rate.
2: Well, first of all, let me let me tell you that we have a regional um, housing finance agency that we just stood up. Um, I'm a member of the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. That bill was also a David Chu bill that allowed that to happen. We couldn't get a revenue measure on the ballot that would pass this year, so everyone said, "Well, I guess that's dead for two years." You no, know, I turned around and said, "Look, the counties themselves have." Um, acres and acres of, of surplus land, of, of vacant land in their inventories. Santa Clara County has 700 parcels of land, my county, that uh, some of which are underutilized or could easily be turned over for affordable housing. And that's the New York story. That's how that happened there. Uh, the municipality created the finance agency, uh, stood it up as a separate authority, and then donated you know, the, the seed corn, if you will, the original pieces of land. Uh, once you start that process, there's enough profit in turning over uh, those properties uh, to essentially to 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 continue to self-finance. It's exactly the same model that private developers use and I know because once upon a time I was in that business, um, you know there's nobody around who's doing private housing development that's sitting around you know waiting for a subsidy what they are looking for is, is the right land cost to get started. And, you know, we in government can be part of the solution. So what I have proposed, and it's, it's underway, is that um, three of the counties in, in the nine-county Bay Area put up the first three parcels to that regional housing finance agency, dedicate those in, in other words, say, here you go, like a grant, um, and, and, and just wait for, you know, a fraction of the return on investment. Um, and, and joint venture those projects with, with surplus property. So you, you can't just think that everything is going to be, you know, financed by, by a tax. I think the housing bond that I mentioned is a good idea. Um, and you're right, that alone isn't going to solve the problem. Um, a statewide housing finance, finance agency alone isn't going to solve the problem. A regional agency in the Bay Area alone isn't going to solve the problem. But you start combining all of those tools um, and some tax incentives to get developers moving. Um, all of a sudden, you know, you can get things going, and you, you'll, you'll see you'll see major major affordable housing production around BART locations um, in the next couple of years because we took that step already. Um, we took that step as Metropolitan Transportation Commissioners. We said, you know, we we want a bill in the state legislature that allows BART to proceed to develop their sites with affordable housing. Um, you know, even if they have to take some parking away, um, you know, there's your there's your land right there. They don't need a subsidy. They don't need a tax measure. They just need that land freed up. All
0: right. David cortesi we're going to have to leave it there because the clock has run out on us. I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much.
2: Great questions. I appreciate the dialogue. Thank you.
0: David Cortez is currently a supervisor for Santa Clara County. He's also a candidate for Senate District 15 which covers a big chunk of San Jose and Silicon Valley. That does it for today's California Ballot Breakdown. A big thanks to Corinne Smith, who produces these segments. My name is Brian edwards Teeger. If you like what you hear here, you might want to tune in to the live show that we both work on. It's Upfront on KPFA, weekday mornings starting at 7 a.m. And if you want to catch every one of these election segments, our initiative debates, our candidate interviews, and our special reports, you can subscribe to them all as a podcast feed. Just go to kpfa.org. Look for California Ballot Breakdown and click the link that corresponds to the service you use. Remember, in California, your vote matters even more down the ballot.